0: Bilingual in America. Tunei elloga fi America.
1: Bilinguismo negli Stati Uniti. Bilingue in America. Serbilingue in America. i I'm Suzanne Lasser. I'm Yarina Sanxiang And this is
0: Bilingual in America.
1: I'm Yarina Sencion. This segment is part two of Pearls of Wisdom with Dr. Ofelia Garcia. If you missed part one, you definitely wanna to listen to that episode. We begin this segment with Dr. Garcia reflecting on the importance of students being proud of who they are, their families, and their cultural roots. Let's listen in to co-host Suzanne Lasser as she reintroduces Dr.
0: Ofelia Garcia. Yarin and I had a chance to speak at length with the well-known expert with broad and strong roots in the field of bilingual education, a true pionera, Dr. Ofelia Garcia. For those of you who are unfamiliar with her work within the world of education, she began as a teacher in the New York City public schools before bilingual education even existed as an instructional model. She is professor emerita in the PhD programs of urban education and Latin American, Iberian and Latino cultures at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She has been professor of bilingual education at Columbia University's Teachers College and Dean of School of Education at the Brooklyn campus of Long Island University. To be
2: proud of their mothers and fathers and, uh, and grandparents and and the practices of their homes, whether they speak English or not. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous that, that it, it's only important when you do not speak English. So unfortunately,
0: <laughs> not a lot has really changed, right? So many of the <laughs> points that you brought up, Yarin and I see here, you know, within our own district, we have newcomers who are seated in bilingual or dual, class, dual language programs who are long-term Ls. Right, and they're viewed the same. Or for someone like me, or you know, comes from. And I come from an English-speaking home. People are always so impressed. Like, wow, she speaks Spanish so well. Well, the same thing is true with my students who are non-native Spanish speakers here in dual language. But no one ever gives credit to our our Latinx students who are bilingual, whether they're part of the dual program or not. It's always looked right. at like, oh, well, maybe because they're heritage learners that there's a problem with their, you know, performance academically. So we have a lot of work to continue doing
2: for sure. Yeah. Suzanne, that, you know, it reminds me as you speak of the labels that we use. One for me that I really have trouble with is heritage learners. The heritage piece drives me nuts because what we've done And, you know, I'm again, I'm old enough that I know the histories, right? I know when we never use the word heritage in the United States. It was used in Canada, by the way, but never in the United States. Never. uh, uh, People didn't talk about heritage languages. They talked about community languages, but not heritage languages. There was a certain point, I think it was 2001, when Berkeley had a conference and they talked about heritage and heritage took off. And I always say, well, my children, for example, they're not heritage speakers of Spanish, they're native speakers of Spanish. They were born here. They were born into homes where uh, Spanish was spoken. They're native speakers of Spanish, of their Spanish, right? By making them heritage speakers, you are taking away the privilege of being a native speaker. That always takes away. It starts feeling this Linguistic insecurity. Oh, no, no, I'm not a native speaker of Spanish. I'm a heritage speaker of Spanish. It must mean that I was way in the past. It's not not here now. It's here now. You just cannot compare... Someone who has grown up, been born in the United States, grown up in the United States, with someone who speaks Spanish or speaks French somewhere it's completely different—it has to be different. Uh, I don't know what we call them. <laughs> I haven't—I haven't gotten to a, a term that I like, but I can tell you that I, heritage to me is a problem because it takes away the privilege of you being a native and what it does is it only uh, it only makes native speakers those who were born abroad there is then no U.S. bilingualism right there, there is no U.S. Spanish for example because you can only be a native speaker of Spanish if you born abroad that doesn't make sense to me and then the second one of course is long-term English language learners you know there are so many uh kids that, as you well know, feel more comfortable in English. Sometimes they only, they say they only speak English, and yet we're told that they're long-term ELs, and you say, how could it be, you know, because they, didn't, they don't pass an exam, a standardized exam, an exam that sometimes, as we all know, they don't do well with because of reading and especially writing, and that ha- does not always have to do with English language development, but a, in terms of English acquisition development, but it has to do with the fact that they're not great writers. <laughs> you know. Uh, mm. and so then they get branded, labeled as long-term else, and then they're in the hole. So, I mean, the whole way in which we define bilinguals as being deficient, I think, has consequences. Has consequences for their lives, for their education, for the community that that is always in this rut, or you know, circle. They don't seem to be able to get out of a, of that circle.
1: I really appreciate the lens that you put on that. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could redefine long term L's? Like, couldn't everybody be a long term L because <laughs> right. you're learning right. language continuously, Forever.
2: right? That's that's so great Yarina you know I, I talk a lot about emergent bilinguals and you know I, the other day I was just spoken a Nave and uh, I was speaking to some people at lunch and you know we were talking about this term emergent bilinguals and I said to them look when I coined or when you know when I started talking about emergent bilinguals so I don't you know, I don't feel, I don't think I coined it, but anyway, I started just, you know, naming it that way. It was when the word bilingual had been silenced completely. You know, it's uh, it was up to no child left behind, no child left behind silenced the word bilingual, right? All of the laws that were the Bilingual Education Act, Title VII of, of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, was changed to Title Three, which was then English language acquisition. The word bilingual in federal law was completely deleted. I know people who say that there were uh, clerks that went through the law and crossed out every mention of the word bilingual. So it all became English language acquisition. You know, back then we used to call, we used to talk about limited English proficient students, right? Uh, Is not even English language learners was the right term. And I thought, all right, we have to bring back the word bilingual in some way. And I started talking about emergent bilinguals because it was a word of naming, you know, naming as consequences. If you don't name, you don't exist, right? So it had to be named in some ways. But I also said, what I didn't say then, which I want, you know, I want to say now, is that the ter- the term emergent for me came from the work of a Chilean biologist, his name is Francisco Arella, who actually ended up in Paris, and he he worked a lot with this theory of emergence. And emergence is simply the idea that we uh, we put everything together. We assemble. We orchestrate all of our of all of our stuff together, right, to make sense. And it all emerges. I I've said the same thing that you've said, Yarina, In other words, because what I really believe is that we we are all emergent bilinguals. That all of us, depending on the task that we do. Are emergent bilinguals that there's a, a continuum of practices that we all exist in this bilingual continuum. That is not even the same for one person because it depends on the task whether it, you you need your your feeling more comfortable in this language doing this than than in this. So it all changes depending on your context. You know, it's it's the an ecological part of language that I think gets dismissed. So you're absolutely right that it's about the fact to know that we all we can always grow we can always do more that we're always emerging right it's always emergent
1: absolutely you know as you were talking i remember when i took my first literature class in college in spanish and i Uh had to write my first paper that was really really (laughs) difficult for me right and i was like mommy i need your help like she's like, you're in college and i'm like no 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 (laughs) you don't understand like this is really like, I'm seeing where I I want to expand as a language learner, even though Spanish was my first language, but that was developed alongside. So yes, Uh, I think that this is a perfect segue, and we saved the last question for this, which is the recent work that you did with dynamic bilingualism, multilingualism, and translanguaging, Mm -hmm. I think, first, if you could define translanguaging, because we have a variety of listeners where maybe we have um, novice teachers and then we have well-seasoned teachers. And then maybe if you could expand and share if you feel that we're making progress, are we heading in the right direction in terms of our language policy?
2: Very, very succinctly, if I can translanguaging is the idea that bilinguals do not have two boxes two languages psychologically Uh, yes there are two languages socially two languages that are important right that are important for my identity their bilingualism is important for my grandchildren's identity but that when we act as people uh, what we have is we have a unitary repertoire, a unitary repertoire of features and meanings that we use selectively depending on the audience that we are speaking to, right? So that's the idea. I always say it's, it's think of not two boxes. Well, think of a string of pearls, right? And that you have this string of pearls that you keep adding pearls to. You know, I always think, you know, language teachers are not teaching a language. They're, they're just adding pearls to this repertoire. They're expanding it in some way. And that's what translanguaging is. Translanguaging is thinking of and it's an ing because it it focuses on the actions that, that bilinguals do. And their actions that they do with this repertoire of meanings that, for example, in homes and bilingual homes and bilingual communities, you don't have to watch because you know you said you said things without having to watch, right? What you were saying. But but in school. You don't say those words, right? you you don't come up with those because they have restricted us to this these pearls at this time and these other pearls at this other time. And the cognitive injustice of seeing bilingual children that way is what really motivates me, because if you think about it, not only are you not teaching them with all the resources, right? I mean we always we're always taught to teach making sure that we we are uh, addressing all the students resources so not only are we doing that but when we assess the children we are assessing the bilingual children with less than half of their repertoire whereas the monolingual children are assessed with their full repertoire right And so that, that to me, uh, translanguaging as a theory of language is important because it puts the action in the speaker and because of its social and cognitive justice ideas. So dynamic bilingualism, for me, stands in opposition to additive bilingualism that everybody has told us that that's the way it has to be. But that's the way it has to be because All the theories about about bilingualism at that time, you know, again, you know, I'm not blaming any scholars. I'm just telling you that I know they they only knew elite bilingualism. They knew sequential bilinguals, right? I mean, bilinguals who had a language, maybe like Suzanne, and then added a second language, right? Whereas most bilingual communities, minoritized communities, do not develop bilingualism that way they they be, develop as simultaneous bilinguals because in the home the two languages are spoken at you know depending so so the the acquisition is different the bilingualism is different and translanguaging focuses on that unitary repertoire and the idea that we can act with this repertoire if we're allowed to now for teaching, uh, because I want to make sure that that uh, people understand me, it's it's important to remember that translanguaging instructional practices are important to open up spaces at times. But you have to understand why you're doing it and when is it appropriate and when it's. Done. So I mean, what we have today in dual language bilingual classrooms is. Um, a complete separation of languages right every the policy is english one day and spanish the next day or english in the morning spanish in the afternoon or two teachers you know how you know how you do it uh, i don't have to explain to you but within though, and those spaces are still important they're important because Comprehensible input is still important, right? It was uh, such an old idea, but so such an important idea, but the input has to be comprehensible. In order for kids to be acquiring learning, there has to be comprehensible input. And so you, you think about when is it appropriate to open up a translanguaging space within the instruction? So for example, the reading workshop. During the reading workshop, the le- the book that you're reading, whether it's a read aloud or guided reading, work, whatever it is that you're doing, uh, the re- the text has to be in the language of the day. But there's no reason why you should not, when you group students, allow them, not force them, allow them to use their full repertoire, and by the way, when I talk about their full repertoire, I'm not only talking about their linguistic repertoire. I'm talking about the repertoire that you know we often refer to as being paralinguistic: their gestures, the visual, the drawings. You know, there there are ways of making meaning that are not just linguistic, and we we use them a lot in kindergarten. And then we forget about it. It's like, <laughs> mm-hmm. No, don't, don't ever uh, put a, a drawing in your in your writing. That's childish. So, so I think it's it's a matter of when do you open up these translanguaging spaces? Do you open them up? You know, sometimes you will have to open them up for scaffolding. We we have talked about what we call the translanguaging rings, and I think of the rings as lifesavers, right, that sometimes children need individually you need to know when to put it on and when to put it off when to take it off and for what task janina you going back to what you asked before because for some tasks they might need the scaffold for some tasks they might not need it so you you need to be able to be able to individually take them off on and off the other reason for opening up translanguaging spaces is for documentation and for assessment there you don't know what a an a child really knows until you allow the child to express himself with all his reach, all, all his or her resources. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's important. And then I think a third reason for having these translanguaging spaces built into your instruction is for. Transformation, and we call it transformation. I've been criticized a lot because they say, "Oh, it's not transformative." Well, you know, it may not have, it may not change the world, but if it changed the perception of one child, that's good enough for me. And um, and I think many of our children have this idea that what they do at home, their language practices at home, are not valid, are not important in any kind of way, and this develops this. Um, These subjectivities of inferiority that really dominate sometimes the children. So in order to to make sure that we push against that, in order to build up the children's subjectivity, having translanguaging accepted in the classroom in some ways and uh, used in ways that are generative, I think it's important because it transforms their subjectivities. And how teachers do this, they do it in very different ways. And do you have to do it every day? No, you have to do it whenever the child needs it. You know? uh, but, but I think it's important to think about it this way. Otherwise, we are, you know, I had a a colleague, a Frisian colleague, I don't know if you know, uh, Friesland is a, the, the northwest part of of the Netherlands, and they speak Frisian there, just related to old English. And he was a director of bilingual education there. And he always used to tell me, Ophelia, bilingual education has to be for children. It cannot be for languages. And I, th- I think sometimes we have forgotten that lesson. When we insist that dual language ha- programs have to always separate languages so strictly that we leave the children behind so
1: Mm. it's so important what you share Um, it reminds me of a youngster that um, came into second grade and by fourth she had a very good Spanish skills and reading understanding in her native language and they were concerned because they didn't see her advancing and so I said can I just like talk to her and have her read to me in English, but she can talk to me in any language that she felt comfortable. And she it demonstrated so much inferential knowledge about the book, and she contenta solturas. It just like poured out of her. And then I explained to her, I said, "This is why I'm doing this with you, and I really just want you to show me everything that you know and understand." And she just did. Every year now, she sends me this little card. Because I had that conversation and that interaction oh. once with her once. because I, I gave her permission.
2: I know. Yes. In school.
1: Right. To use everything that she knew about language. And she's so happy. And now she's advancing. Like she's just taken off, right? Because ahora se now she's uh-huh. like out uh-huh. there in the world uh-huh. and beautiful uh-huh. and bold. Qué bueno. you know? Qué bueno.
2: yes. Qué bueno. That's great. That's great to hear. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What you're saying is just so important and I really and I do I do call it transformative work so thank
2: you <laughs> gracias. Muchas gracias. Yes. One,
0: one student at a time right and that's right and, and every decision that we make matters
2: absolutely right? absolutely yes mm-hmm. and every well, every child is different just like the two of you are different uh, you you know I, people ask me all the time <clears throat> what's the best model? <laughs> said, there are no models. That's, we got stuck on the models. And, you know, I hate the word model because once you think of a model, you think that you have to emulate that, you know, this, which is static. And, and instruction cannot be static. Education has to be you know, dynamic in the sense that it has to adjust to the community that you have. And every community is different. And then within the community, there are more differences in classrooms. You can't have one model. You have to to be able to adjust your philosophy of education, of bilingual education to the community.
0: So Felia, we wanna thank you for being so giving of your time and this exceptional Relevant conversation, and uh, you know, definitely in quotes, your pearls of
2: wisdom. Gracias, gracias, Suzanne. Te lo agradezco mucho, y gracias por la invitación. Okay. Ha sido
0: un placer. Y, uh, Good
2: luck to you. Thank you.
1: Thank okay. you, Ophelia Beautiful. As we close this episode, we think about the pearls shared during this part two. If you don't name it, it doesn't exist. There is a bilingual continuum. We are all emergent bilinguals because we're always emerging as language learners. Growing a language is adding a pearl one at a time. And translanguaging is a lifesaver that allows teachers to teach with all of their language resources. It gives a lens to holistic assessment, and it's transformational. What a rich discussion. Thank you, Dr. Ophelia Garcia. You raise the quality of the ethos to the bilingual education and conversation. Speak your beauty. Thank you for your interest in the stories we share. By sharing, following, and liking our podcast on anchor.fm, Bilingual in America, and our Instagram blog at bilingualinamerica.podcast, you are speaking your beauty. We welcome your comments and feedback. Follow us, like us, share us.